Hey there, and welcome to episode 28 of IoT This Week. I'm your host, Craig Smith. As usual, we have lots of things to talk about today. Some of them include more IoT botnets, the WannaCry ransomware mayhem, keylogging found on HP laptops, and don't hack your former employer, and much more. So let's get started. All right, so first up, we have yet another IoT botnet, and this one has been found by Trend Micro, and it's a botnet that has been found to be infecting vulnerable IP cameras. So according to Trend Micro, it's uh, targeting more than a thousand different internet protocol camera models. And right now, Trend Micro says that there's at least 120,000 web connected cameras um, that are vulnerable to this particular malware. So the interesting thing with this particular one is that it's looks like it's got a um, particular light for IP cameras, and it's kind of sticking sticking with that. And it looks like it's also using, um, or at least IP cameras in general typically use plug and play, universal plug and play, um, which make them highly visible to, uh, well, highly visible to pretty much anything on the internet if the um, universal plug and play has decided to. Um, expose a particular port available on that camera to the internet. And then we have the report of multiple vulnerabilities in ASUS routers. So there's several different models of ASUS RT routers that have several CSERF vulnerabilities, which allow malicious sites to log in and change settings um, in that particular router. The um, report also says that there are multiple JSONP vulnerabilities which would allow or potentially could allow exfiltration of router data and an XML endpoint um, revealing Wi-Fi passwords. So it looks like most of these issues um, have actually been fixed by ASUS, and they were fixed back in March 2017 with the uh, that, that month's firmware update. Um, but it looks like there's one issue, JSONP, which still, um, according to this report, um, remains unfixed because ASUS doesn't really consider it a security threat. Um, so anyway, if you have um, certain models of ASUS RT routers, um, be sure to uh, get the latest firmware update. And then we have a really interesting article from Wired. So the article maps out all the different areas that are involved in making autonomous cars. So in total, there's 263 different companies um, that are involved right now in moving towards um, helping make autonomous cars a reality. So there's seven or eight different areas that they have listed here in the Wired magazine. So there's things like services, safety and security, um, infrastructure, um, intelligent manufacturing, onboard sensors, that sort of thing. So. So yeah, so a lot of these companies, um, most you've probably never heard of. Um, most people that think autonomous cars usually hear things like Tesla, maybe GM, um, some of the other uh, big typical auto manufacturers. Um, but yeah, just uh, yeah, personally, I didn't realize there were um, this many companies involved in uh, making autonomous cars, but uh, pretty cool. And then we have a website that I've mentioned several times in past podcasts, which is hackaday.io. 
So if you're into IoT or making your own IoT devices, whether it's the, you know, the software part or the hardware part, um, definitely check this site out. So right now they have the Hackaday Prize 2017 going on. So what they're doing is a challenge, which is called the Internet of Useful Things. And it's actually the second one, and it started. So what they're looking for in this particular um, challenge is for people to create things like, uh, and they, I mean, they want to create, like it says, Internet of Useful Things. It wants to create useful IoT devices. So they want to create things like um, reliable utensils for the disabled, um, you know, a way to find clean drinking water, in rural villages, refreshable braille displays, and that that sort of thing. So not like um, connected toasters or a connected spoon or something like that that might not be particularly useful, but um, like the like the thing says, the Internet of Useful Things. So definitely check that out, hackaday.io. So we have a new survey out of the UK, and it's an orga organization called the Institute of the Motor Industry. So they surveyed about 900 people in regards to um, connected cars and various aspects of connected cars. So um, according to the survey, half of the 900 people surveyed said they aren't aware that their car is open to cyber attacks. And it also said that 51% um, of the people surveyed said they do fear their car being accessed and controlled by a hacker. So one of the interesting things that came out of this um, particular survey is um, one thing they said is that 86% um, of people surveyed by the IMI believe vehicle technicians should be qualified and regulated to carry out repairs. So like I said, this is out of the UK, um, but I think that's um, interesting, um, whether it's in the UK or the US or wherever, um, cars aren't so much... I mean, there's still lots of mechanical pieces that have always been there, but there's the software aspect of it. And a lot of the folks um, who have probably been in the car repair business, whether it's working for dealers or such, um, they're probably, well, we probably know they've been, well, for sure they probably, well, we hope they've been trained in how to um, repair cars effectively when you take them into a dealer or whatever. Um, but like I said, there's the software aspect of it. So, it is kind of um, interesting um, that we probably do want to have some kind of regulation, and hopefully the, the car manufacturers already do this, where their technicians have to be certified for not only mechanical parts of the car, um, but also software parts of the car. And one of the things, obviously, is making sure that the software side of things is secure, and if there is a vulnerability found in a car and you take it into a dealer to get um, updated, that the person there, the technician, um, updates the particular software correctly. Um, so yeah, so this will be interesting going forward to see how this um, plays out as cars become more and more connected and how the repair people at like car dealers, for example, um, deal with it. And then finally, um, in IoT, if you haven't heard, um, Charlie Miller and Chris Velasic have released all of their car hacking research um, so this includes the Jeep Cherokee, Jeep Cherokee that they hacked um, a couple of years ago that was in the, you know, all the news where Jeep had to um, recall like 1.5 million Jeep Cherokees to um, deal with the hack that they performed on that particular car. Um, 
But in addition to the uh, Jeep Cherokee, they they also released research that they uh, performed on uh, different various other models and other various aspects of car hacking. So definitely check that out if you're into um, you know poking around your particular car, your own car, and in the CAN bus and that sort of thing. Um, probably some helpful. I'm sure there's some helpful hints and uh, you know lessons learned and so forth from the research they did. So yeah, definitely check it out. So on to security, and of course the big story starting last week and continuing on this week is the WannaCry ransomware. So if you don't know what the WannaCry ransomware is, it's a modified version of the external blue exploit, which came out of the um, hacking tools that were allegedly created by the NSA, and these tools were stolen and leaked online by an anonymous group known as the Shatter Brokers. So what in this particular article, what the folks did, they put out put up a SMB honeypot and exposed it to the internet. And according to the article, um, the honeypot, it was essentially um, infected just about as soon as they put it out on the internet. But it was infected with the ransomware six times in 90 minutes. So yeah, that's pretty impressive. So the article um, goes on to mention that at the time of the article, which was May 14th, I believe, there were 223,000 infections. And they calculated the amount of money taken in um, at that particular time as $31,000. So the payments have to be, so if you get infected with this ransomware, it basically demands payments to a particular Bitcoin address. So the article has narrowed it down to at least three Bitcoin addresses. And like I said, at the time of the article, they were, if you know what Bitcoin is, um, you can look at a payment address and go on to the blockchain because everything's transparent in Bitcoin. So all you need is a Bitcoin address and you can go and see how many um, Bitcoins have been sent to this particular address or the amount of Bitcoins that have been sent to this address. So like I said, they've narrowed this down to three, at least according to the article. So what's interesting now, so the article was yesterday, Sunday, so today is Monday. Um, and if you go look at these um, three Bitcoin addresses that are receiving payments, it's actually instead of $31,000, actually it's up to about $60,000, assuming these um, particular um, Bitcoin addresses are correct. So the, the one thing they mentioned is that the is the code um, in this particular worm is um, very good. Um, and again, mainly it's because it was based off the um, external or sorry, eternal blue exploit. But someone was actually able to, and I think they accidentally, accidentally did this, but a particular security researcher, they were able to actually find a kill switch for the ransomware. So as he was, um, the person was at, um, well, he goes by the nickname of malware tech. And as he was reverse engineering the code, he found that the um, malware was actually pinging um, a domain name. So if the malware pinged the domain name um, and it wasn't actually registered, then it would continue to um, install the malware and um, go through its encryption process of locking up whatever files it was able to find. Um, so the, what the person did was actually went and registered this particular domain name. And it's, and it's really just a big, long, um, random bunch of letters and numbers um, that ends in .com. So they registered this domain. And as soon as they did this, um, the ransomware that was out in the wild would actually ping this domain and be like, oh, hey, this thing's been registered and it's there. 
Um, so I'm going to stop and um, pretty much just stop doing what I'm doing as far as installing the malware or um, continuing on with the encryption process. Um, so there's been reported stories. I haven't seen um, a lot of updates today, so I don't know if there's actually a new version 2, but supposedly there were researchers reporting that there was a version 2 out there without this particular kill switch. Um, but I guess we'll see how it goes in the days ahead. Um, if a like version 2.0 of um, WannaCry pops up and we start getting a whole lot new, whole lot more infections. So one of the so one of the things um, with this particular um, ransomware is that it, um, as I mentioned, it was they put up an SMB honeypot. So this particular ransomware uses the SMB port for Windows, which is 445. Um, why anyone would have this particular port exposed to the internet, I don't know. Um, for sure, this is something you definitely, that's a port you definitely don't want exposed. Um, but this particular, the exploit for, or the particular vulnerability that Internal Blue was actually exploiting was actually patched by Microsoft back in March with MS-17-010. Um, but because people are kind of slow to patch or sometimes, especially with corporations, there's just a very long patch cycle to get things patched. Um, unfortunately, the ransomware is finding lots of things uh, to infect. So definitely, um, if you haven't patched your uh, Windows machine or servers or whatever um, since March, then definitely do that. And also make sure that you do not have port 445 exposed to the Internet. So continuing on with the theme of ransomware, there's a new strain, a dub JAF, J-A-F-F. And according to the article, the Nikurs, N-E-C-U-R-S botnet is actually the botnet that's been um, called upon to start distributing this particular ransomware. So what it does, it, um, it spreads in a similar way to um, Locky. And it said it actually even uses the same payment site template. Um, but even though it uses the same site template, it's actually a um, different piece of ransomware. So it said um, attached to dangerous, dangerous emails is an infectious PDF containing an embedded docm file with a malicious macro script. So this script, um, it'll download and then um, or the macro script will download and execute the JAF ransomware. So a couple of things that are interesting about this particular piece of ransomware. So a lot of the other ones, um, even though they demand payment Bitcoin, it's not a huge amount, relatively huge amount of Bitcoin. Um, but this particular um, strain of malware or ransomware is actually asking for two Bitcoins. Um, and I think right now a Bitcoin is um, sixteen, seventeen hundred um, U.S. dollars per Bitcoin. Um, so that is quite a bit for this particular um, piece of ransomware. So according to the article, though, um, for whatever reason, um, it looks like it's um, and you know however they're identifying this, um, at least at the point of time that the article was written, um, that the ransomware is actually only infected like two victims. Um, so we'll see how this one goes um, in the coming days ahead, too, um, as um, ransomware right now is kind of, um, yeah, it's on an onslaught of, of pretty much everybody on the Internet. So definitely uh, be careful out there. 
And then if you own a OnePlus mobile device, um, definitely make sure um, that you get your phone um, updated to the latest version because a security researcher has discovered four vulnerabilities that affect all OnePlus handsets. So that includes the one, the X, the two, three, and three T running the latest versions of Oxygen OS 4.1.3. Um, and that also um, affects Hydrogen OS 3.0. So the article states that uh, one of the unpatched vulnerabilities allows man-in-the-middle attacks against OnePlus device users. Um, so this allows a remote attacker to actually downgrade the device's operating system to an older version. So what they may be looking to do by upgrade or downgrading to an older version is the, um, those particular older versions probably have vulnerabilities um, that may have been patched in new versions. So they downgrade it, um, which exposes um, past vulnerabilities that weren't patched um, in these older versions. Um, and then also, um, according to the article, um, the, the, there's two other vulnerabilities included as four that also allow a man-in-the-middle attacker to replace any version of Oxygen OS with Hydrogen OS or vice versa. Um, and they can also replace the operating system with a completely different malicious ROM, um, which could be loaded with, loaded with malware, spying apps, and that sort of thing. So anyway, um, like I said, definitely if you've got a OnePlus mobile device, um, definitely um, be extra diligent um, as far as what you do um, with that device and uh, be on the lookout for an update. And then we have HP laptops in the news and not in a good way. So apparently there's an pre, a pre-installed HP audio driver, which includes key logging ability. So I doubt HP um, set out to um, intentionally sell their laptops with a key logger. Um, more than likely, this was probably intended to be um, some kind of diagnostic tool. Um, but, e but either way, it's still um, pretty much... According to the article, it records every single key press and is storing them in a human-readable human file. So um, if you happen to have a HP laptop, um, the file, the log file, is located in C, users, um, public, mctray.log. So I would um, have a look at that. Um, I think there's actually probably a patch already out there or a new version. Um, or if there's not, um, HP will be sending out one soon. Um, and then you can also look and see if the executable C Windows System32 mctray64.exe and C Windows System32 mctray.exe. Um, if you look and see if those two files exist on your system, um, then you probably, this key logging functionality is probably um, running on your um, laptop. So definitely um, have a look at that um, if you have a HP laptop. And then we have the next story, something I alluded to at the beginning of the podcast where a guy um, decided he'd come up with a scheme. Um, actually, he was a security officer at um, a company called Tyan Inc. So he came up with a scheme to fake his hours. So this was while he worked for Tyonic. He came up with a scheme to fake his hours. Um, so the company found out that he was doing this. They um, subsequently fired him. Um, so once they fired him, um, he wasn't done 
um, with the company. So he decided to um, hack the company's email, server files, etc. Um, he also um, hacked the website to face the website. And he eventually um, was hit. Um, after he was found out and arrested, he was hit with a $300,000 bill um, for this whole um, faking his hour scheme and then hacking uh, his former boss's website. So, uh, yeah, I don't think uh, things obviously didn't turn out too well for this guy. And we have um, up next, we have a story um, from True Health Group. Um, obviously a medical organization um, and essentially what happened here is that they exposed logged in users to other users data and they did this um, the data was exposed simply by changing so if you were a logged in user um, you could simply change a single digit in a link attached to a PDF and the PDF was sent to the logged in user for viewing that user's latest health report so that particular logged in user could change a single digit in the link, um, in the link attached to the PDF and view other users, um, medical information. So, um, yeah, not good by true health group. And then, uh, Microsoft, um, has released an emergency patch for a vulnerability discovered in its malware protection engine. So you probably heard about this one where, um, essentially, the uh, malware engine um, could be used to um, perform remote code execution. Um, so one of the things, um, one of the researchers looking into this, they actually called it one of the worst Windows remote code execution vulnerabilities in quite a while. Um, so again, um, you know, you've got ransomware, um, you've got Microsoft throwing out emergency patches for the malware protection engine. So if you're running Windows, um, definitely make sure, um, especially this month, that you get the latest updates. And then passwords. So we have a new draft version of NIST's password guidelines, and they've um, they've run these password guidelines by different vendors, and looks like a lot of the um, particular vendors they've um, um, kind of allowed to view this um, or have a look at this draft have actually approved it. So the new, the new framework password guidelines framework, um, it recommends a few things. So one of those is removing periodic password change requirements. Um, two is dropping the algorithmic complexity requirement and three require requiring screening of new passwords against a list of commonly used or already compromised passwords. So personally, I think these are I think these are actually really good ideas because a lot of these things like having to reset your password every 30 days or 60 days or whatever. Um, and also having to have complex passwords, while it sounds good on paper, a lot of these things in the long run, um, it causes people to write down passwords more than they might have originally if it was something, you know, a password they could remember or whatever. So. So I think this is a good idea that NIST is doing um, to actually update these things and kind of um, uh, make these things user-friendly and kind of look at these things in the, you know, the end game or whatever um, and trying to keep people from doing things like writing down passwords or, or do away with things that are causing people to either write down passwords because they're having to change them so often 
or they're just too complex to remember or whatever. Um, then, and then I think the third thing is really good to, um, you know, whenever a person creates a new password, they already have a list of um, compromised passwords that they just go ahead and, um, compare that against. And if it's something that's compromised, they basically come back and say, Hey, you know what, this is part of whatever, you know, this one's been exposed or whatever, and just come up with a new one. So we'll see how this goes. Um, but right now it's just a draft version. Um, but it's definitely, uh, something interesting, interesting, um, to see how this goes, um, going forward. And then on to technology. So according to a story, Apple Watch can detect an abnormal heart rhythm with 97% accuracy when paired with an AI-based algorithm. So the study involved um, where they came up with the, how they came up with a 97% accuracy, um, the study involved 6,158 participants. And these participants were recruited through the, uh, an app called Cardiogram. So yeah, really interesting um, to see what all the um, uh, Apple Watch will be able to um, detect when it's combined with um, other things on the back end, like AI-based algorithms and such. And then we have a recent survey um, of 2,345 U.S. millennial and Gen Z shoppers. Um, so this was really curious. Um, and actually, I'm surprised at this. Um, what they came up with, um, yeah, I wouldn't have guessed this. Um, but they found that the Amazon app was the second most popular app among those surveyed. Um, so, yeah, like I said, it's not – I wouldn't have expected Amazon um, to be the second most popular app for millennials and Gen, Gen Z shoppers. But uh, apparently, according to this uh, survey, it is. And then Cloudflare, in an attempt to um, fight a patent troll, they've offered a $50,000 bounty to anyone who can help invalidate this particular patent they are fighting. Um, so domain names. So there's a rush on for Ethereum domain names. And if you don't know what Ethereum is, it's a blockchain-based um, domain name system. So Ethereum is actually, um, it's, well, like I said, it's blockchain based. Um, but there's also some cryptocurrency that goes along with it. Um, but you can, it's a, I was reading it, um, cause I was thinking about, um, maybe, um, registering something for myself, but it looks like it's a rather complicated process to be honest. Um, as far as trying to get a domain name, Ethereum domain name. So it's not like your typical, um, purchase of a domain name where you do now like .com or .net or whatever, where you just go and pay like, you know, 10 bucks or whatever. And you get the domain name if it's available. Um, like I said, it's a pretty, um, compli complicated process, uh, at least it seems to me where there's bidding involved and it's only temporary, like a year, I think of what I read and so forth. Um, but anyway, if you're into Ethereum, um, and you want an Ethereum domain name, um, definitely check that out. Uh, <clears throat> And then the FCC website. So the FCC was looking to take comments on net neutrality. Um, and one of the funny things that happened, um, uh, was it John Oliver um, on his show? He basically urged all his viewers to go out to the FCC website and um, file comments. Um, they actually created a site called Go FCC Yourself. Um, which would take you right to the page on the FCC website. Um, so you could put in comments. Uh, apparently this uh, particular page was buried 
way down in the website. So this is why they, um, or John Oliver had this uh, particular Go FCC herself put together so it make it easier for folks to find it. So right after um, he sent people to do that, the site went down. Um, it's curious, and I don't know that they've actually said why it went down. I think the FCC was claiming that they were um, a victim of a DOS attack. Um, who knows? Maybe they just didn't want to take comments and took it down. Um, but whatever the reason... Um, one of the other things that showed up, um, I don't remember if this was before the site went down because of the alleged DOS attack or after. Um, the other thing that happened on the FCC website was that it got flooded by fake anti-net neutrality comments. Um, and, this, and the way it was getting flooded was by bots. And apparently this tactic has been used before by large ISPs in the past. And... Um, what they essentially do is they get um, the contact information somehow for people. Um, they just put in fake comments, um, use these people's names, addresses, phone numbers, or whatever, um, you know, making it look like these, um, you know, Bob Johnson or whoever put in the comment. Um, but what the FCC did, they were actually saw this happening, and they started calling these people back, and the people um, that supposedly put these comments in the FCC site website actually had no idea um, what they were talking about, or even what net neutrality was. So, uh, yeah, shenanigans uh, going on with the uh, FCC website where they were asking for um, net neutrality comments. Um, and then in the there's a link in the newsletter. Um, there's a pretty interesting article on NFC near field communications, uh, which is basically it's everything you wanted to know about NFC. Um, if you, so if you were ever curious about um, what actually happens. Um, when you use NFC, um, definitely check this out. And then next up, um, uh, we have Amazon and they've, um, if you have a Amazon device, you've probably seen this already, but they've enabled, um, uh, free calls and messaging through their various devices using the Alexa app. Now there are some issues that I've, and I've been reading uh, different stories on this. Um, the app uses your current contacts list to fill in the names of people who have Amazon devices so that you can call them. The only problem is that you can't actually um, block people who are in your contact list from calling you. So essentially anybody who's in your contact list um, can call you at will um, whenever they want. So my guess is Amazon will uh, fix this and uh, put some various features in there to um, help sort some of this thing out. Um, and then lastly, Apple is nearing $800 billion in valuation, and it's well on its way to becoming the first trillion-dollar public company. So, yeah. And I think I mentioned last week they had like a, I don't know, a quarter trillion dollars worth of cash sitting around, most of it offshore. Um, so, yeah, we'll see what... Uh, you know, we'll see how the iPhone 8 do goes, um, see what they come up with next, and... Uh, you know, see if they actually make it to a trillion dollars. And then last but not least, the miscellaneous section. So just a few items here. Um, patents on MP3 format are close to expiring. So that's pretty interesting since MP3 has been around forever. So those patents are beginning to expire. MasterCard aims to speed up chip and pin payments. Um, 
Yeah, I don't. Uh, that'll be cool if they can do that because anytime I use chip and pin, it's like taking uh, four or five times, probably it's longer than what it normally takes to um, use a credit card. Um, Google launches the Fuchsia, F U C H S I A, Fuchsia OS. Um, so I'm sure we'll probably talk about that in a future podcast. And you can pay your American Express bill through uh, Amazon's Alexa now. And that uh, wraps it up this week. Um, if you have any comments, suggestions, um, feel free to ping me at craigz 28 on Twitter. I can be reached by email at podcast at iotthisweek.com. But other than that, that is it. Oh, also, um, Fargo, um, also make sure to um, check out the newsletter. Subscribe to the newsletter. Um so you can get a weekly update. If you don't have time to listen to the podcast, you can get a weekly update of the uh, latest happenings in uh, IoT, InfoSec, and tech. Other than that, that's it for this week. So have a great day. We'll talk to you later.